Hello and welcome to The Double Pivot, the world's most agreeable soccer analytics podcast. I am Michael Cayley. We are here after another weekend of matches, which like brought us a bunch of news, got a bunch of stuff to talk about. It's all kind of stuff we've been talking about. So it's like providing running updates on stuff we've been talking about, but everything changes a little bit. And there's been news like, you know, United finally decided to make a change. So we got stuff to talk about. I'm joined by Matt Goodman. Where do you want to hit first? Well, the music you heard on the way in is The Whalers. Please subscribe at patreon.com slash double pivot where there'll be another podcast. Uh, we are still going to be doing Kaylee's cool studies at some point on the Musa Dembele level. All of this is coming. Um, you will indulge us here first for a little while if we pat, us, pat ourselves on the back a bunch. Um, <laughs> the thing about both the Manchester United and Arsenal storylines is that <laughs> there's nothing new here if you've been listening to us. Uh, and we have been, like, but we have been, I think, on these two particular topics fairly out ahead of the discourse. And the discourse is finally starting to catch up to, I think, where we've been. Um, you know, poor Carl yeah, it, Anko, was, Anko was well ahead on the discourse and is no longer on Twitter because a whole bunch of Manchester United fans got really mad at him for suggesting that maybe Ole wasn't doing a good job. Yeah. I, I, I think the... the the world has fully cut up on Ole. Oh, yeah, he's been 100%. sacked. And it is clear. And his team is in, what, seventh place now? Eighth yes. Place. Eighth place, At, right? Yeah. They're, they're in eighth place with below average XG difference, below average goal difference. You know, things are bad. They've lost four of their last five. You know, everyone did finally get there that this was bad. It took a while. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it took a while, and it took them losing a bunch of matches, and then it took them getting smushed by Watford. I, I don't like the the combination of not firing Ole going into an international break, coming back, getting absolutely whacked by Watford, and then firing him is just so perfectly what Manchester United have been post Alex Ferguson. Like, it is just such a perfect microcosm of the whole management problem, as distinct from from like. Ole's shortcomings as a manager. Like, I don't think Ole is a very good manager, but I don't think that like the problems with Manchester United are Ole problems. Like, the reason that you had a not very good manager trying to man- manage Manchester United was because there are just massive structural decision-making projects, problems at the club. Right, and so, like, be- and, th- and then because of this, what they're doing right now is just absolutely flailing. Yes. They are, you know, they, they, they're trying to get like Luis Enrique, who is under contract for the world cup coming up. They're trying to get Mauricio Pochettino, who is under contract to a team that just like, can just say no to giving up their contract. You know? Yeah. But will, will they, I don't know if they'd say no. Um, but also like, they're also apparently really interested in Eric Ten Hag. At, at yep. Ajax and over Mars and like bringing in the, both the, the both of them and I, I don't know. I mean, all of these are different plans. Is the right. important thing. They are interested in all of these things, and because they're Manchester United, they can offer money to break a manager's contract and offer enough m- money in wages that the the manager would want to break their contract. Like these are reasonable things to want. To, you, you, it's, it's it's reasonable for Manchester United to set their sights high. 
they should be setting their sights high. They are Manchester United, and they are rich. But they are setting their sights high, like, all the way across the horizon, different possible plans. And it seems pretty clear that different people involved in the hierarchy have different plans. And Mendes, who is now part of their hierarchy, effectively, has different plans. And there's no central decision-maker at all, which is, like, how—this could work out, but, like, the structures here in place that leave you with making the firing at this point and not earlier, and then leave you when you've made the firing, having clearly no plans in hand whatsoever in any kind of centralized way— it, the, the same problems are still there. It hasn't, nothing has changed other than the fact that there's a good chance they hire someone who is better at managing than Ole, or at least they hire that person, you know, this summer or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, <laughs> assuming something weird doesn't happen between now and this summer, this summer is the most likely time when we'll be, we'll be hiring a manager. Uh, and there will be a number of good candidates on the market. There are a number of good players, very good players at Manchester United, and you can build a very functional team out of these players. Like, one can imagine a world where even dysfunctionally, more or less what happens at Chelsea with Tuchel happens at United with a good manager, at any one of several. Um, and they just get better without fixing the underlying problems. But, like, you're not confident that's going to happen because there is no good decision-making process. I mean, it's not all that much different than when... I mean, it's not. It's exactly the same thing when they hired other managers. Where, like, they were flirting with Pochettino before ultimately bringing in Mourinho. Like, they, they were... Every decision point, they have continued to have this scattershot approach of without a plan, without a footballing plan specifically. And it just... You know, it, it doesn't really work. Yeah, and they have this sort of, you know, this central problem on, on on the team that they have a center forward who is too old to be involved off the ball, whether that is um, in possession or out of possession. And they don't have, they have one excellent passing central midfielder who isn't really a central midfielder. Other than that, none of the other ones are plus passers. I'm like... Those are both problems that you can try to work out a way to fade, and and one important way that you can fade that is not run that center forward into the ground, but it is not clear, like, does a manager come in with the power right. to make changes to this team up top where they need them, or is the manager going to be stuck working around Ronaldo playing 180 minutes a week? And then all of the other little problems, like, ah, oh, this fullback can't really pass. These midfielders don't have the right mix of skills. Like, we've got creators in the weird places, and we've got scorers in weird places. Like, all of those are, like, sort of normal tactical problems that good managers usually figure their way out of. But they are all exacerbated by the sort of tactical straitjacket that Ronaldo 180 minutes puts on you. Right. And, like, I do I do really suspect that, like, Ole being, like, his buddy made it that, like, he pressed even less than he has been. That he passed and was involved in build-up even less than he had been. That there was nobody even putting, like, mild pressure on him to do 
any of the things that he doesn't particularly want to do. And in a very real way that dropped him below an important threshold for what he is on the field from being an undeniable plus because he's such a good goal scorer um, to being somebody who is less clearly benefiting the team because of how much he is taking off the table in order to get that goal scoring. Um, and now maybe he physically can't do it this many minutes anymore, so you have to make that trade-off. Or maybe he just doesn't, doesn't do it unless pushed to some degree by a manager. And I don't think we know the answers. To, and, like, I don't think we're going to know the answers to that under Michael Carrick. And, like, I also probably we're not going to know the answers to that under whoever comes in to finish the season. Um, but, like, and I don't know. Maybe he won't be there next year. Like, I have no idea. There's a lot of stuff up in the air right now. Um, but all, all said, like, you just... Like Manchester United just need to make some good decisions, and they—it's been a long time since they've made good decisions. So, yeah, there's a lot of value in a manager who just comes in and says, you know, and this is not something that requires a lot of like finesse in the locker room. They just come in and say, Jaden Sancho is starting and Mason Greenwood isn't. Yep. Yeah, a hundred percent. That is correct. You can bring uh, a lot of value out of that without really any cost. Yeah. Is the, are the is the team that was in part responsible for moving Mason Greenwood from the youth squad up to the first team going to be the team that does that? I, I, I have my doubts. Mason Greenwood can get and then Mason Greenwood could back up Ronaldo when he sits one game a week. Yeah, all all, all of this is true. Um, oh, wait, like, exactly, me- these are these are things that are I think pretty simple. And it is not clear that the structures in place at United enable a manager to come in and do a couple of simple things that will improve things. Right, that's right. I, I also do want to say, like, one other thing about this awkwardly constructed team, which is awkwardly constructed, no doubt. It is also a very talented team. I think there is to some degree this temptation to look at what are absolutely holes in this squad. Um, whether it's, it's Aaron Wambasaki not being not going forward from right back particularly well, whether it's, um, you know, mid, you, you're not really having a, a passing possession midfielder in, in, who can play in a double pivot and, and sort of like orchestrate an attack. All of these things are true. There, You can be a good team playing around holes in your squad, playing around tactical problems because you have so much talent elsewhere. Hey, like, a season and a half ago, Manchester United was doing exactly that with a less talented group. Um, I think it is right to point to those things and say those things would keep Manchester United from being as good as the other best teams in the world right now. I think it is deeply unclear to me that this team, if competently led, isn't like a top eight team in the world, even with these holes, even with these holes. So, yeah, like, I mean, when we were doing our season previews, like there was a pretty big gap between Manchester United in fourth and the next set of teams. And that was based on the talent in ways that mostly haven't changed. I think I am I am now more open to the idea that this was like a real categorical drop in Ronaldo's performance. 
But I think there still should be room for that to bounce back, especially if he doesn't have to play as many minutes. And even that, like, that's a drop. But we didn't have, like, we were not seeing Ronaldo as an absolutely transformative talent at this point in his career. And so, like, this is a this this is a solid fourth place collection of talent in ways that it was before the season and is now. And the weak, exactly as you're saying, the the things you can point to as problems are all problems that we knew about when they looked like a fourth place collection of talent. And and what's gone wrong for Ole is that for a while he was the guy who wasn't elevating this team. And then with what he did this season, it seems like he's been dragging, pulling them down. And again, this is, I think is, you know, retreading the same material. It feels a lot like Lampard last season, where they yeah, got him more talent and it wasn't leading to anything. And here right. they got him more talent. It got worse, which is, you know, you know, even worse than the Lampard story. I mean, I do think there's like a very specific dynamic here between Ole and Ronaldo that like it, like, I mean, I didn't predict it happening, right? So I, I should be clear about that. But in retrospect, I think like giving somebody, giving Ole somebody like Ronaldo and, and expecting him to have to motivate him to do things he didn't want to do is, is it was a problem Ole was just never going to be equipped to solve. Um, now that said, when, when when Chelsea got rid of Lampard in the similar situation, they went out and they brought in Tuchel immediately. And I think to some degree, like they got rid of Lampard because Tuchel was available. When looking even further back, when Liverpool get rid of Brendan Rodgers and bring in you know Jurgen Klopp, to some degree, it's because Klopp is available that they move on from Rodgers because they're like, oh, these are elite managerial talents that we can go and bring in and we would be like remiss to not upgrade and do so. Whereas like there is none of that decision making here from United. There would have been if they had gone and got Conte three weeks ago, but they didn't. And I I think that's a good analogy too, because like Liverpool is just a very well-run club that identified the incredible opportunity in, in, in Klopp being out of work. Tottenham, not a very well-run club, but Daniel Levy isn't afraid to change things. When something isn't going to work, he avoids letting the team fall into a spiral. And so he just, he's kept, like, changing something and changing something and changing something. And, you know, I, I think that it's too early with Conte. We'll, do, we'll check in on Conte and Spurs a little bit later. But... This is the sort of move you make when you are not afraid to make changes and when you are when you don't get yourself locked in to bad situations. Yeah, I mean I think that that's all correct. Um So speaking of bad situations, ah, there we go. How's it going it. for Arsenal fans online? <laughs> oh, brother. Um Arsenal got whooped by Liverpool, which like yeah, Liverpool's a really good team. Arsenal is not a really good team. I don't think anything is particularly surprising about that. The questions all around are like, how good are Arsenal? And like, there's a lot going on here. So what angle do we want to approach this from? Yeah, I, I think that like the first thing here is that the way is the sort of dynamic of the game which is that, um, you know, Arsenal were for a were, were trying to play in possession with the ball and just getting pressed. 
And so they end up around 77% pass completion with a lot of it in the deep zone trying to play through the Liverpool press. And this Liverpool team at this point is a, a pressing monster. And once they press, they are extremely good at a couple of, like, there's a couple of dynamics you see happen every single time with the way that Salah and Trent can combine, and then you are finding ways to get that ball across the box. And if you look at the shots that they got in this game, they got five clear scoring chances, like, just at the left goalpost or a little, or, or like, a little bit uh, side to side from there because they built up through the right and then they moved it across the penalty area, and Arsenal were consistently, like, either they could be broken down in, in in possession, but for the most part, they were getting broken down in transition off of turnovers. And this Arsenal-specific tactical approach that Arsenal has was incredibly poorly aligned to its level of talent versus Liverpool's level of talent. And, okay. like... The Arsenal just play the way that they play because that's the thing that Arteta does. Yeah, and although I will say that, like, it is only recently that we can confidently say that Arsenal are playing the way that Arteta wants them to play because that's what Arteta wants them to do. And it certainly isn't on the level of the best teams in the Premier League. The question is, what level is it on the level of? And I think that there's a considerable amount of debate there. Right. So, like, just to, to break the numbers, I, I think that the first thing to do here is to kind of, like, chuck XG out of the story. XG is really a... Uh, it, it's a misleading part of the story because... If you if you if you knew nothing about expected goals, you'd have the same set of problems evaluating Arsenal. So, Arsenal's xG is negative six point one, which is sixteenth uh, best in the Premier League. But like their goal difference is negative four, which is tied for like thirteenth best in the Premier League. And in both cases, like the the ordinal ranking, I think, can be a little bit misleading because like. Everton are at negative three and Southampton are at negative three. That gets you up to 10th. Brighton are at negative two. That gets you up to uh, up to ninth. Like, we're right. We're already in the middle of the table and looking at just like a goal or two different. There's a little, a little bit more than that for XG, but it's not that different. Like, the difference between Arsenal and a team in, in like 10th place in these ratings is, you know, is marginal. within your error bars. Yeah, it's extremely marginal. Everybody here is, is like super tightly bunched. And the fact that, like, you can say 16th in expected goals is, like, a loud headline that sort of um, unfairly exaggerates the problem, which is, like, this is a team that is, like, in the mix for 10th to 16th in expected goals, which is more or less where they are with goal difference, like, which is, like, a slightly below average team. Right. And and they have played a, a slightly harder than average schedule. So like you can you can you can you can, you, can, you can give them a you can, there's 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 a little bit of a bump you can get there, and like you probably expect them to be a little better than that just just on like goal difference and last season performance and and, and schedule difficulty you got them probably in the like eighth to twelfth range much more than the tenth to sixteenth range. Yeah, seems right. And the problem is, and so like. 
that's the baseline we're working at here. It's, it's not the case that, like, okay, this team is 16th best because they're, you know, at the very bottom of a middling group of teams in the Premier League. It is that this team coming into the season looked like a solid 5th, 6th kind of deal. And, they, and the reason for that was that they had made a couple of good acquisitions that should improve the defense, and that down the stretch last season, they had improved their performance from last season. And so, so their, their early season performance was worse than their late season performance. And it seemed like development. It seemed like you had this clear sort of tactical story of Odegaard and Smith-Rowe coming into the side and giving them more passing in the forward zone. You had the development of Saka, like all of those things. It looked like you could say Arsenal should be maybe a little better than their overall performance from last season. And that has really not come to come to fruition, partly because the defense has been quite poor against very good teams, and partly because the attack has just gotten worse across the board. Which and can, both which of those things like... look to me like like serious problems that you can't be dismissing at this point. I, I just think that, that everything that like the case for optimism for Arsenal entails involves looking at the good side of saying, if you take out the bad side of the equation, we're good, but not like further examining like the reasons that you haven't been as good as your like optimism. So like, if you were to say to me, well, yes, our numbers are this, but we have Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe and to a slightly lesser degree Odegaard and some other young talent who are improving. And so therefore I would expect us to get better from this point on instead of worse. That is a reasonable sentence. Here's another reasonable sentence. Arsenal are a team with a number of young talents who have two old strikers at the top of the formation who will get worse as time goes on. And so the argument that this team will get better because Emil Smith-Rowe and Saka will improve, among others, is not more valid than this team will get worse because Obama Young and Lacazette will get worse as time goes on. How those two things shake out is is complicated. Like, I, I don't think it's, like, straightforward that they either cancel each other out or one outweighs the other. I mean, I think there's a lot of interplay that goes on there. But I am quite confident that you can't just say one and ignore the other. Um, the same goes true if you want to make the argument for why you shouldn't count bad performances against the best teams. Because, like, everybody in the Premier League has to play the best teams unless they are the best teams. Like, there's nothing more valid about saying, well, look at our performances outside of playing the best teams than there would be about, like, saying, look at our performances outside of playing the worst teams. Like, there, there is, there, you cannot just, like, take the best set of performances, hold it up as the ideal, and say, going forward, I expect that to be the average level of performance. It doesn't work that way. Any more than it would work to, say, take the worst set of performances, hold it forward, and say, I expect them to be that bad going forward. This is why we aggregate and do averages. And and further to that, like, if you look at, because, like, last season, like, the other thing about this is that Arsenal have been playing under Arteta for a while, and last season they did not have an aggregate problem. Yeah. 
The aggregate problem is new. The aggregate problem is not a, an Arteta thing. Last season, they had a number of... They, they did get beat up in a couple of games by, by Man City. Um, they also did a perfectly solid job against some okay teams and beat up a bunch of bad teams. And the aggregate ended up coming out okay. They also had some reasonably close games against good teams. And what, what's, what's happened this year is that it's not just that they've gotten whooped by Liverpool and City. It is that they haven't had any pretty good performances against good teams. They haven't had, they had, the, the closest thing you could say, they, they, they really did whoop up on Norwich, but, you know, not against Watford and not against Brentford, not against some other teams, not against, not against Leicester City. And th those teams, they've mostly played average or worse. And so, like, when you just look at the, the, the performance level against the other teams in, like, the 10th place area, they've been below average in those games. Like, that that's what the... That's what it averages out to, and they've 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 gotten a bunch of wins, a couple of of, of performance that have you know gone, but they, winning close games and losing games by blowouts and not winning any blowouts is a really bad indicator. If you look at teams that just win close games and lose blowouts over the course of the season, they drop down. It, that's pretty consistent, and like it's because it is better to look at aggregates than to um than to isolate bad games and i think i think there's a, there's there's a one way that, that that people are sort of looking at these aggregates is there are a handful of games this year in which arsenal went up by more than one goal and then won those games while conceding a bunch up two goals like a bunch of the run of play a bunch of shots a bunch of chances a bunch of xg like getting what you would just sort of generally considered outplayed while up two goals. And the argument sort of here goes, well, you should discount that. It's misleading because Arsenal were up by a lot, so who cares? And I think it's like, it's important to like be specific here about what it means for single game X XG to be misleading. If you look at those matches, when you walk away from those matches, those matches become roughly even in XG. And it is entirely accurate to say of those matches, a roughly even XG total does not accurately reflect Arsenal's chances of winning that match. It does not reflect the, the way the game flowed. And so those matches were not close during the run of play. And that is absolutely true for when you're saying XG can be misleading. However... It is not misleading to say that ultimately on aggregate, Arsenal didn't play all that much better than those other teams. It is just that when they didn't play that much better, they were already winning. And like, it is absolutely an important part of your barometer of a team. How well do you play when you're winning by two goals? Better teams play better than worse teams when they find themselves up two goals. Worse teams play worse than better teams, even at those times when they find themselves up two goals. It is true that the XG is misleading about what happened in those matches. It is less true that the XG, as you're getting up towards three, four, five matches in those situations, is misleading about the level of performance of the team. And so you have Arsenal. And, and like, and the thing is that Arsenal have a couple of games where it goes the other way, right? You know, the the, the you, you've got you've got the you've got the Norwich game, you've got the Brentford game, 
Like, they have a bunch of games where they played a little bit, their XG is a little better than their record. And the, the, the math of it ends up being that the XG just isn't that different. They were, they were, not only were they pushing for a goal up to 60 minutes, but they, 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 they kept getting chances against Norwich. And, like, they went down against Brentford and kept getting chances and, you know, not, not a ton, but a lot of shots. And, like, those matches came out okay. And, like, you get a balance of those things. You've got a balance of games where, you know, maybe the XG is a little bit unfair, but the other way, maybe less so. And the, the XG just doesn't end up being a major part of this story. It, the, the, that part does seem to basically balance out. The, 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 you can see the exact same problems in, in goals as you can in right. XG. Yeah, I mean, and, I think, I think all of those, they're doing less of the good stuff and more of the bad stuff. Each, each set of games on the margin, you can identify it being worse than it was last season. Yeah, I mean, I just think that when, when you don't see a major goal to expected goal dislocation, then, like, you are It's not as if the argument here is that expected goals is picking up is picking up on a dislocation in the table where Arsenal of points where Arsenal is that goals is not. What we have right here is like your old school goal difference is very dislocated from where Arsenal is in the table, and goal difference is consistent with expected goal difference. So you don't look at that and say, okay, the goal difference is obviously an incorrect indication. And so then it's just like, well, what's going on? Where well, Arsenal have a lot of points, but their goal difference doesn't seem to suggest they should. And the answer is like. There's not a complicated story here. They've just sort of like come out ahead in a lot of narrow results, and you should not depend on that happening. All right. So then the one thing that so those are two stories we've been sort of like on top of in one way. The other one is interesting because Chelsea, the team at the top of the Premier League table, beating Leicester, a mid-table team, by a bunch of goals doesn't sound like a story. Chelsea had, had coming into this game a, a plus 23 goal difference. But here is where there was a really big XG goal difference story that no one seems to care about because they're winning. But maybe... And, and then in this game, Chelsea looked amazing. Chelsea looked fantastic. And so, like, was were those early struggles where they weren't getting quite as many shots, and in particular where they were just giving up somewhat more than, you, than you'd want to see just going to fade? I mean, I'm inclined to believe, and I think we talked about in the podcast, that there were real problems, but that we expected them to get corrected because Thomas Tuchel is a good manager. Um, I mean, I don't think you want to declare mission accomplished here because they beat Leicester. But, I, I mean, I do think that like both of us have been sort of reticent to give in on the idea that Chelsea is a very good team and would eventually... Be a very good team, even if perhaps not quite at the heights that they hit last season. Right. And and then on top of that, we have the title race situation, which is that I still feel solid saying that Liverpool and City should be better than Chelsea over the course of this season. But should they be three or four points better? Like, that is where it gets a little bit fuzzy and where Chelsea having banked these points on a run of, you know, great goalkeeping and just terrible opposition shooting are in position to get better by enough based on sort of our previous expectations of, of, of their talent and capacity that they are still in this title race, even if they are probably somewhat behind on performance level. 
Yep. I, I mean, I think that's all right. I, I don't know. Like, I just... <laughs> Chelsea remain weird. Like... Yeah. Like, like they remain weird. Like, like Reese James is, like, the major attacking contributor here at the moment. <laughs> and he's been out of his damn mind this season. Great. But, like... Can you keep doing that? I don't know. And 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 Ben Chilwell is playing. It's like the Marcos Alonso role, but with more creation around the penalty area too. Yeah, and there's more it's, variety. It's very clear that what 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 Tuchel wants to do is really unleash those wingbacks as his primary support for his forwards. But like, and does he want to do that because he had seventeen different wingers get hurt, or? When everybody's healthy are what is what we're going to see more knitting together from those forwards playing off Lukaku with the wingbacks continuing to contribute like they are. Like, it is a major difference whether you conceive of your ideal sort of support forward for Lukaku as Timo Werner or Mason Mount. One guy is supposed to be, you know, a running partner in, 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 the, in the box, the other guy is supposed to do much more knitting together with other people contributing in the box. And, like, what this seems to suggest to me is that, like, right now those wingbacks are contributing a ton. Is that supposed to be the part that goes with Lukaku? Or when Romelu Lukaku comes back in a week, do we see that fade? And I have absolutely no freaking idea. Yeah, I mean, like, it works very well with Kai Havertz, who's like an excellent facilitating nine. Yep. And it works particularly well when they had, like, it worked okay with Hudson-Odoi on the pitch. It worked really well when they got Pulisic or Ziyech in there. Um, and then you with just Pulisic have a lot more a, talent around the pen, inside the penalty area. And with Pulisic as a nine, which they did for about a half hour against Leicester, yeah. that was, that. I mean, like, Leicester, like, they did not look good at that point. So, yeah, who, who knows how accurate a representation that is of, of, of what's going to happen. But this idea of a wingery mobile reference point there that, like, everything else, like, dive bombs forward off of is, like, pretty interesting. Yeah, because, like, last season we had a pretty good idea what the, what the front group that Tuchel wanted was supposed to do. And now with Lukaku... It is a lot less clear. Yep. And there's just, like, a lot... Like, it seems like the wingbacks have been um, upgraded to a much more important part of the tactical setup right now. Like, you could not imagine Aspilicueta right now filling in for Reese James at right wingback, given the way they're playing. It wouldn't work. Um, you know, so... I, I honestly don't know what that means for this team going forward. Whether whether we're going to see continued evolution or whether, like, unleash Reese James. Like, that seems like a reasonable endpoint of a game plan to me. Reese James is really good, really talented. Yeah, it, exactly. Like, can you unleash, unleash, this is a tough one. Can you unleash Reese James? And be getting the most out of Lukaku, Pulisic, Havertz. Like, or do you need a little less from them or one or a couple of them not on the pitch in order for that to work? And is, is that trade-off 
worth it. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you are always getting a little bit less than their capabilities out of somebody in this collection of talent. The question is, like, who was, like, who's supposed to be making that sacrifice? And I, I, like, I mean, I have no idea. I have no idea. (laughs) I just have no idea. Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. We're going to be coming back with some Champions League content, and uh, my study is now in draft form, so we will be uh, having some writing to talk about. All right. Cheers, y'all. See you later.